0: Alright, well good morning. So good to see you all here today. Uh, If we haven't met before, my name is Bill and I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. Uh, Kurt recently told me that people make fun of my intro. Good morning, Mosaic. I was a little offended at first, right? I was a little offended at first, but I remember when I was a senior in high school and I was going to college... One of my uh, friend's older brothers, he said, you know, what you'll find out in college is the people that banter with you and make fun of you are often the ones who become your best friends. And I found that to be true in life. You make fun of people that you like. Uh, I I know that to be true for myself anyways, which is why I never make fun of Kurt. So, so, all right. Well, anyways, we're in the middle of a series, Uh, week three of a series that we're calling Ransom we're really attempting to answer this question, why did Jesus have to die? Why was that, why was that God's solution? Why was that part of God's plan for us? Uh, and it's a big question. It's not always an easy question to answer. Uh, but when you, like Cindy mentioned March Madness, like when you, watch, uh, when you watch sports especially, like you would think Jesus came to die so that our sports teams can win, right? Like the end of the game, Prayer. And they'll pan to the crowd, and people have their people are praying, people are looking up, and people make the big shot, and it's like, thank you, Jesus, that we made the big big shot, and we laugh at that, we you know, but do we operate that way in life, right? Like, why did Jesus have to die? But when promotion time comes around, right, or when our child, our babies uh, are having trouble falling asleep, right, and then we begin to realize. That so often in life, we operate in the sense that uh, Jesus dying to make us feel comfortable. And the thing I've been reflecting on a lot is maybe Jesus came to even free us from that mindset. And so when we attempt to answer this question, why did Jesus have to die? It's important for us to realize that the New Testament writers, they always reference Jesus' death as a way of representing God's love. Uh, they don't see God as bloodthirsty and angry, and he kills Jesus instead of killing you. What we see is this God of love, and God's love is represented through the cross. We find this in 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 9. It says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so we're taking this gem of a question. and the past couple weeks, we've been talking through just the different, different aspects of this gem, right? And we're going to turn it again today. But week one, we talked about how Jesus' disciples misinterpreted his mission as the Messiah. They saw him as an overthrower of Rome, come as king of Israel, and Jesus came as king of the world to establish his kingdom forever. Uh, Last week, we talked about how Jesus fulfilled a day that uh, the Hebrew people celebrated called the Day of Atonement, the day that they would cleanse their temple so God could continue to live among his people, and God cleanses our temple through Jesus' death so that God could live in us, a new thing. But the amazing thing and the good news of Jesus is that we get to turn that gem again because there's more good news. There's more good things happening uh, that I'm excited for us to step in. Uh, today but before we do that I want to know that project you had that was looming that almost seemed impossible but you did it finally what did that feel like describe that to me shout it back at me what did that feel like relief oh yeah moving moving and stuff but what did that feel like in your soul in your heart in your body yeah weight relief what else What was that? Triumph. Triumph. Absolutely. Now what? What's that? Now what? Now what? <laughs> yeah, what do I got now? Because it almost feels like that. It's like, what next? Is there going to be another impossible task ahead of me? Uh, to me, it feels like uh, when you're a kid and you're swimming in a swimming pool and you see how long you can hold your breath for, or you see how many laps you can do underwater, and your lungs start to burn, and your body starts to shake, but you're like, "No, I'm staying under, I'm staying under." And then you finally come to the surface, and you breathe for the first time. Uh, that's what that moment, those moments of my life have felt like. Uh, I remember that season of my life, that season where I was just longing for it to come to an end. Uh, and I've told this story before, but it's been a while. But uh, when I lived in Southern California. Uh, Inevitably, I ended up working in the film industry, as you do, right? It's like, it's the thing to do. It's it's what all the cool kids do. So I was like, I'm going to do film. So I had a friend who he worked at a startup nonprofit, not nonprofit. He worked at a new startup company that they converted 2D movies into 3D. Does anyone actually like 3D movies? Show of hands. A couple. No one likes 3D movies, right? But I was like, yeah, I'll work on 3D movies, So he said, you know, you can just get coffee for the producers. We'll pay you minimum wage. I was like, sold. I need a job. I'll take it. Uh, Well, when I started the company, we had about 40 employees. Within six months, the company had 300 employees. So by the time I was there for six months, I was one of the most senior people there. So inevitably, like, I moved up. I got a lot of promotions. And then my boss came to me one day, and he said, hey, do you want to take the lead and work with a group of artists, 30 minutes of Titanic 3D. I was like, absolutely I want to do that. So we started working on Titanic 3D. And then my boss comes to me and he goes, hey, James Cameron is coming to the studio tomorrow. I was like, James Cameron is coming to the studio? Awesome. So we get ready for him. We only had about a dozen shots done. And I was really nervous about that, because I was like, oh, no, we need to have more. Um, But they were good shots. We were doing good work. I felt like this is going to be a good thing. So James Cameron comes into the studio. He looks at shots. He, we showed him our workflow. We showed him our team. And he left. I was like, well, he's known for his temper. He didn't throw a chair through the movie screen. So I think we're good, right? So he leaves. My boss calls me into his office a couple hours later, and he says, James Cameron wants you guys to do the entire movie because he loved your work. And I was like, oh, my gosh. And then he said, do you want to do it? do you want to continue to take the lead on it? And I said, heck yeah, I want to take the lead on it. Like, this is Titanic. This movie won 11 Oscars. This is one of those life-changing moments. Uh, And I'm like, I'm ready. Heck yeah, I want to. And so began the worst year of my life. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, You have no idea. I'm sure some of you do. But it, it was the worst experience I've ever gone through by far. It was one of those, it was, we had a 24-hour production, and so there was many days where I wouldn't even come home for two or three days straight. I just slept in the theater at the office, and it was really, really, really rough. I remember there was a moment about seven months into the project, we had to deliver 15 minutes of the movie, because they were using it for marketing material uh, somewhere, and we got all the shots done for 15 minutes of the movie, except for two shots, but we had another 24 hours, and we were doing a review, and so, you know, we were supposed to have all the shots done, but we had everything but two shots that were still being worked on. We were going to finish them, and uh, we had a review. It was good, but after the, the review, my boss was visibly upset. So I go to him and I say, "How are you doing? Are you doing okay?" And he he proceeded to berate me. And I had been like at the studio for three days straight at this time with very little sleep. I'm living on caffeine and adrenaline, and uh, Basically, he says, I should fire you on the spot for two shots, right? And I remember just feeling so angry because we had worked so hard for seven months, and the studio continually gave me too little resources. And uh, now I'm in this position where he's like, I should fire you. And so I'm mad, I'm angry, and uh, I start walking away. And my other boss, because when you work in companies like that, you have like eight bosses, right? My other boss comes up to me and he says, how are you doing? Are you doing okay? And I said, no. He goes, let's go for a walk. And uh, if you know me, I'm not a very emotional person. I don't cry a lot. Um, But I basically spent the next 10 minutes bawling in his arms, just tired and frustrated and angry. And it all just came out. And I said, I quit. I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. And he was like, no, don't do that. We need you to stay here. We only got five months left. And he said, just go home. Think about it. Come back. And so I did, and me and Nicole decided, you know what? We're going to stick it out for five more months. And uh, those five months were worse than the previous seven, (laughs) for sure. But I remember when we finally finished the project, I remember sitting in the studio when we had our last client review, and they said approved to the last shot, and just clicking that button in our database, and it was done. It was finished. I remember feeling the release, the weight off my shoulders. I remember seeing the completed movie in the theaters. And as I watched the movie, every shot that came up, not every shot, but most shots that came up, I could see artist's Face, who worked on that shot. Uh, I could see the shots that took us two, three months to do, and all this hard work that went into it. And I remember just sitting there, feeling like it's finished. And I could breathe again. I could live again. I felt like I was a slave, and I was finally set free. And six years ago, on Good Friday, I had my last day working for that company, Uh, because once we finished the movie, we had to tie up some loose ends. And so on Good Friday, I walked out. It was a sunny, beautiful California day, and it was the best Good Friday I've ever had in my entire life, because I felt like I could breathe again. I felt like I was a slave that had been set free. Uh, and I remember, actually, in that moment, I called Aaron, and I said, I should have moved to Nebraska with you. I shouldn't have stayed in Southern California. It stinks. Um, but that was a real catalyst for me, funny enough, to end up asking myself questions like, do I want to do this? No. What do I want to do? Um, so James Cameron is the catalyst for me being here today. So you could thank him for that. Um, <laughs> Or you can not thank him for that if you don't like me. I don't care. Um, but it was just that moment. It's finished. I'm free. I can breathe again. We all have these moments in our life. Uh, when Jesus was on the cross, uh, his final words were, it is finished. I, I want to walk through these words, and I want to walk through the significance of them today. Um, So if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in John chapter 19. It's also going to be on the screen. This is what it says. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished. That's significant. Knowing that everything had now been finished. And so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on the stalk of of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. I've highlighted hyssop there because I want you to put a little tab in your brain. We're going to address that later. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. You know, when we tell the Easter story, we don't typically stop there, do we? But Jesus says in this moment... It is finished. What has been finished? What has been accomplished? Uh, That word finished. So the New Testament was written uh, Greek. So John used the word teleo, uh, the Greek word teleo. And that Greek word teleo, it means like a finished purpose. Like you've accomplished a long-term goal. Because it's easy when Jesus says these words, it almost seems like, well, yeah, he's just been tortured for 24 hours, and now it's finished. He's done. He's dead. But Jesus is actually describing something more than just the pain and agony that he went through. It even introduced it at the beginning of that verse. It had said, knowing that everything had been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, right? What's been finished? What scripture has been fulfilled? We're supposed to be asking ourselves these questions, And John, he actually leaves some breadcrumbs throughout his book to lead us to this moment. Uh, He uses this word teleo, this idea of finishing, accomplishing, um, a few times throughout his book. Uh, One of the times we see it is a moment where Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman by the well. Uh, And so Jesus is speaking to this woman, who already is significant in Jesus' culture because you don't talk one-on-one to a woman in his culture, So Jesus is actually giving himself a bad reputation by just speaking one-on-one with this woman. Uh, And on top of that, she's a Samaritan, and Jews didn't like Samaritans. So Jesus is kind of disrupting culture at this time. He's pulling his culture forward. He's pulling them out of oppression, out of racism, out of sexism in this moment. And then he ends up uh, freeing her. This woman who had been in numerous adulterous relationships, he calls it out, says that he's the Messiah, and he offers her hope, healing, freedom from that. So we see Jesus disrupting and inviting. Uh, And then this is what happens after after this moment. John chapter 4, verse 27. Just then his disciples returned, and they were surprised to find him talking to a woman. But no one asked, What do you want? Or why are you talking to her? Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food that you know nothing about. Do Jesus' words ever confuse you guys? Like, isn't that a weird thing? It's like, if you had a friend like this, you would be annoyed by him, right? Like, are you hungry? I have food you know nothing about. It's like, what? like That makes no sense. That's a weird thing to say. Uh, So then it goes on. The disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? I was like, did someone bring him food, or is he hoarding a granola bar or something? Like, what is Jesus talking about here? And, uh, and then it goes on to say, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish, to teleo his work. To finish, to teleo his work. Right? So Jesus, he, in this moment, part of his work, what he's describing at, what his work is, what he set out to accomplish, is he's disrupting this oppression, racism, sexism, and he's inviting this woman into freedom and hope and healing. Uh, we see this again in John chapter 5. There's a paralyzed man, and Jesus heals him, but he heals him on the Sabbath. Right? And the religious leaders get really upset at Jesus, and they want to kill him because of it. And so Jesus... Uh, in this moment, John chapter 5, verse 31, it says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who testifies in my, in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. He's actually referencing uh, John the Baptist in this moment, and I'm going to get to that passage next, so if that's a little confusing, we're going to address it. You have sent to John, and he has testified the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose a time to enjoy his life. I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, to teleo, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. All right, so again, Jesus is he's, uh, he's disrupting this oppressive system that the religious leaders put in place. This, this system of you can't even do good on the Sabbath. You can't even heal on the Sabbath. And they want to kill him just because he healed on the Sabbath. And so he's disrupting this oppressive thing that was not designed for this, right? And then he's, he's inviting and healing and welcoming this paralyzed man into freedom, right? So this is part of Jesus' work that he's establishing, that he's setting up. And then we get to uh, what Jesus is referring to when he says, John, the, when he's talking about John. He's not talking about the writer of the book of John. He's talking about this man named John the Baptist. And we see John the Baptist at the beginning of the book of John. And John the Baptist is baptizing people. He's baptizing people who want to turn back to God. They're realizing they need uh, forgiveness. And so so John is baptizing them uh, so they can experience that. So they can walk fresh and new uh, with God. And then... When John the Baptist sees Jesus coming from a distance, this is what John just kind of blurts out. John the Baptist, hes the scriptures describe him as kind of like a crazy character. Uh, he's a prophet, and he always says these weird things. But uh, he, it says he eats locusts and honey. It's like, whoa, this guy is crazy. Um, but in this moment of John's prophetic voice, uh, he has this message that he delivers to the people uh, about Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. Such a weird thing to say, too, right? Like lambs, they're, they're small, they're feeble, they're cute, they're cuddly, right? It's like saying, There's Juan, the kitten of the Lord. It's like, What are you talking about? <laughs> It's such a weird thing to say. Uh, and then it says, "Takes away the sin of the world." It doesn't say the sin of the Jewish people." It doesn't say the, the sin of those who are good people." It says, "He takes away the sin of the world." Uh, and so John is making this declaration over what Jesus' mission is is to be the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God." In order to understand that significance, we need to know the Old Testament. Uh, You basically need to know Genesis and up to halfway through Exodus. Um, And so, like most weeks, I'm going to summarize it for you guys. And I'm sure you're thinking, how many times is Bill going to summarize the book of Genesis and Exodus uh, if I'm doing my job every week, right? So, we're going to do a quick crash course so that we can understand what John's significance is by saying Jesus is the Lamb of God. So, the Israelites find themselves in egypt because of a famine so god made this promise to abraham that i'm going to make your family into an entire nation and that nation is going to be the way that i bless the world so this this nation of people end up in egypt as immigrants because of a famine in their land the land of canaan so they're immigrants and they begin to grow population becomes substantial What happens when any immigrant population moves into a new nation as immigrants and they become a part of the significant part of the population? People get scared. And that's exactly what happened. The Egyptians get scared because they're like, these people are taking over. What happens if they rally against us? We need to attack first. Uh, So then they actually end up putting the Israelites into slavery in Egypt. But then in slavery, the more that they're oppressed the more that their population grows so the pharaoh the king of egypt he freaks out uh, and this is what he says the king of egypt said to the hebrew midwives whose names were safira and Pua, then you are helping the hebrew when you are helping the hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool if you see that a baby is a boy kill him but if it is a girl let her live right so it says king of Egypt because it wants us to know it doesn't even have a name to this character. Like this is the epitome of evil. This is the archetype of an of an evil person and an evil nation. And he's like, kill all the boys. Why kill all the boys? It's genocide, right? If you have all, the, if you have no more boys, then you can't have any more kids. And then the women that are left are naturally maybe intermarry with the Egyptians. So through uh, having kids after generations, he's trying to wipe them out. Genocide, a helpless people who have no one on their side uh, and they're on the brink of genocide. That's what we have to see about the Israelite people. So then the midwives, however, feared God and they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. <laughs> I'm glad you laughed. I feel like I, I feel like you almost need to read that line in like a Russian accent, right? Right? They're not like these Egyptian weak, feeble women, right? The Hebrew women—they're vigorous. They give birth, and then they cook dinner that night. That was a terrible accent. I apologize. And a little bit racist. so (laughs) (laughs) Apologies to the Russians in the room. Uh, (laughs) And so then God ends up using this tool that Pharaoh enacts to be the way he begins this deliverance of his people. So then we go on in this story, and a Hebrew woman gives birth to a boy, and she puts him in a basket, puts him on the Nile River before he can get killed. Pharaoh's daughter finds this boy, says... Isn't he so cute? I want to keep him. Uh, And so then this boy becomes Moses and grows up in Pharaoh's household. He's educated in all things Egyptian, Egyptian law, Egyptian culture, Egyptian war strategy. And so this man, Moses, uh, Pharaoh's tool to exterminate them is what God uses to bring redemption. So Moses ends up through a series of events Standing before God in a burning bush and God says I want you to deliver my people I'm sending you to deliver my people And so Moses goes and God God says if Pharaoh doesn't listen. I'm going to send plagues On Egypt I'm going to give them A lot of opportunities to let my people go, but these plagues are coming. Let them know The plagues also seem kind of weird if you read through the plagues portion because it's like frogs Why is he sending a plague of frogs? That's just like really strange What's actually interesting, though, is every one of the ten plagues that God sends on Egypt is actually an attack against uh, one of the Egyptian gods that they believed in. And so we have this kind of up here. I had this real quick if we want to address it. I think there's a slide. There should be. See, like the Nile, there was a god of the Nile. Frogs, the goddess of fertility had a frog's head. I don't know why, but she did. Um, Lice was the god Geb ruled the dust of the earth um flies god of creation had a fly's head livestock the goddess of love had a cow's head weird culture that's strange the next one boils attack against the goddess of medicine and peace hail goddess of the sky Locust, god of storms then darkness was uh their big god was the was ra the god of the sun And so we see that Pharaoh continually says, no, 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 I'm not going to let your people go. And what we have to understand, because the tenth plague is really hard for us to understand sometimes, but this is a people group on the brink of genocide. They have no allies. They have no people to fight for them. They are on the brink of destruction. Unless God does something, they're dead, they're gone, they're wiped out. We have no idea of their existence 3,000 years later. And so God, in this last moment, he attacks uh, Egyptians' last God, which was Pharaoh himself. Because in Egyptian culture, they believed the Pharaoh to be a son of Ra, essentially uh, God in the flesh. Pharaoh was God in the flesh to them. And so God tells them uh, all the firstborn are going to die. And that's going to be the final plague, the final act to be able to release these people from Egypt. And so we have to see this as a people group that are on the brink of genocide, and there's no way to get them out. This is the final, last straw. Pharaoh had nine opportunities to let the people go, and this is the last one. And we also have to see this as an attack against um, the last God of Egypt, which was Pharaoh himself. So what ends up happening is so God says, all the firstborn are going to die unless you do something. Unless you take a lamb, you sacrifice it, and then you eat it as a family. So this is, this is part of the process is you're going to eat unleavened bread. You're going to eat this roasted lamb. But what, what God asked them to do was to take the blood after they had sacrificed this lamb and put it on the doorpost of their house. And he said, if I see it on the doorpost of your house then no one in that household will die. The Passover. Right? And so God says, what I want you to do is I want you to know that I was the one who delivered you from Egypt. There wasn't another country, another ally that came through. I was the one that delivered you. You need to remember that. Uh, and so this moment, I want you to remember forever. Right? You are in slavery, and I, God, is going to set you free. And so in that moment, it happens The firstborn in Egypt, they all die, except for the homes that had the blood of the lamb over it. And the Israelites were finally able to leave Egypt. Pharaoh finally let them go. And they go off, free. Free. And so John the Baptist, when he's saying in this moment, the lamb of God, he's making this declaration that Jesus is the fulfillment of this Passover, Jesus is the fulfillment. The reason why we've been celebrating this holiday for so long, the reason why we always remember uh, God delivering us from slavery in Egypt is Jesus is fulfilling that now. And that's Jesus' mission, right? That's Jesus' mission to set you free from the slavery that you are in. And it's not being enslaved to Rome, Israelites. It's being enslaved to sin, power greater than Rome, a power greater than Egypt. Egypt was the epitome of evil. That's what that's what they want you to see when you're reading through that. Okay? And what's ironic actually about the Israelite people is the reason why God judges them so harshly in the book of Kings is they actually become Egypt. Solomon becomes Pharaoh at the end of his life and the Israelites end up becoming Egypt, which is part of why they had to go into exile. Uh, But that's a little tangent. But we have to see what Jesus has accomplished. Part of his work, right, is exactly what he did in the life of the woman by the well. Exactly what he did in the life of the paralyzed man. Is he's disrupting this oppressive system. And he's setting them free. He's setting them free. And we see this theme all throughout the New Testament. We see it pop up so many times. Um... Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Luke 4.18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. John eight thirty two And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8, 36, So if the Son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. Romans chapter 8, 21, Then creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Galatians 2, 4, Our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. So we see this so often in the New Testament. We see this all throughout the life of Jesus is that he's come to set us free. When he's making that bold declaration on the cross, it is finished. What Jesus is making in this declaration is there's a new exodus because you've been in slavery this whole time. It's finished. You're set free. These oppressive systems are going to be disrupted. Sin is going to be disruptive and you're going to be set free. Healing, hope, And wholeness is set to come. And you know what's interesting is so often um, when we're set free, what ends up happening is we actually long for Egypt again. Uh, Because sometimes slavery is easier than freedom. The Israelites experience that. When you see them walking through the wilderness, so often they grumble, they complain, and they say things like, back in Egypt we had pots of stew. Back in Egypt we had this. Back in Egypt we had that. Uh, And so often in our life we do that too. So I wonder for you, like, where does Jesus need to set you free? Where is it not finished? What are you still holding on to? Because that's, that's just part of life is bitterness is easier than forgiveness. Anger is easier than patience. Uh, and we find these things in our life that we hold on to, that we say it's not finished, Or this is the thing that I'm still working on or I'm trying to do. But Jesus is saying to us today, no, it's done. It's finished. You've been set free. And you are free now. And so what is that thing that you feel like you're holding on to that's not finished? It would be as if I I drove to James Cameron's house and said, hey, I just have a couple shots on Titanic that I saw some errors on the DVD. I'm just going to work on them. Would you be okay with that? He's like, I'm going to shoot you. Like, what are you talking about? Or as if, as if I go to the studio and I go up to an artist and I say, hey, can you work on these Titanic shots? They have some mistakes in it. It'd be like, you're crazy. Like, it's finished. It's done. We're over it. Like, stop coming back to it. But so often in our life, we come back to it and we come back to it and we go back to slavery. But Jesus is saying, no, it's, you're free. I want to set you free from that. And so what is, that, what, what is that Egypt in your life that you, can, that you need to be set free from, that you need to give Jesus full control of so he says it's finished, it's done, it's done? Or what area for you do you feel like freedom needs to come? Uh, you need to be set free. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for today. I thank you for this moment. God, I thank you for the people that you called to preserve your story. So that even 3,000 years later, we we can look back. And we can see the Israelite story and we can realize that's... That's our story. That's my story. Just as the Israelites found themselves in slavery, uh, I feel in slavery now. And Jesus, today we want to declare that we need your freedom. Jesus, lead us on a new exodus away from that oppressive power that is not a nation. It is not a king, but it is that evil that just grips our heart. And so Jesus, today we want to make this declaration, set us free. Release that evil that just seems to take hold of us. And and when you set us free, when we look back and we we say, no, I want to hold on to that bitterness. I I want to hold on to that anger. I I want to hold on to that... That lust, I want to hold on to that greed, I want to hold on to that, whatever that is. God, put that at the forefront of our mind now. And my prayer is that every one of us, we have that image of what that is in our mind, and we say, Jesus, set me free, set me free. Jesus, I pray that freedom comes all over this room. That freedom for all of us. And Jesus, I pray that you will speak over us today that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And that all we hear echoed in our head, and our heart, and our soul is it is finished. It was finished 2,000 years ago on the cross. So today it's finished. It's done. That oppressive power is released and your healing, your hope, and your wholeness and your freedom comes now. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You've been set free, and you're free indeed. Let's just walk out in that truth, and that hope, and that joy today. There's no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's no shame. You're free. Let's rest in that freedom this week, Mosaic. We love you guys. Have a great week.